So good morning. Um, for those of you that don't know me, my name is uh, Justine, and I love being part of this church. Just what an authentic, loving community. Um, so we are in week four of our series, What's Your Story? And um, it's been such a wonderfully rich series. As Chantal has said, we wrap up next week. So don't forget food and photos, two of our favorite things. Um, and we're going to have a community moment of just reflecting together um, on what we've learned in these last few weeks. So this morning what I'm going to do is I'm actually going to recap a little bit of what we've heard in the last three weeks. Some of the kind of central messages and scriptures and ideas that keep showing up. And then I'm going to share with you a little bit of how the dots have connected for me. And so maybe this morning I'm going to be preaching to myself. Um, but I hope some of this might be helpful for us as a community, just as I've been reflecting on what I've been hearing on Sundays, what I've been hearing in our, in our life group. And so we started, Brett set us up so well when he launched the series and he reminded us that stories matter. They're important. We learn from them. But I think more importantly, it's how we connect. And there's been such an energy and an excitement around life group the last three weeks. I don't know about you, but people have been going, I can't miss life group. Um, in our life group, we've had people dialing in on cell phones because one person's had to be at home and the other per you know, to babysit and the other person's come. There's just been something about that connection that has drawn us closer. And I think that that's so incredible. And I think Brett also reminded us that stories are a powerful and effective way to share the gospel. Um, and we see that in the way that Jesus ministered, through parables, through stories. But we've also been reminded a few times about that beautiful verse in Revelation 11 verse 12. They overcame him because of the blood of the Lamb and because of the word of their testimony. And that's been just such a powerful reminder, right? Because you can argue with my theology, but you can't argue with my story. And so sharing our story is just such a wonderfully natural way to share Jesus with people who are not yet Christ followers. But I think sharing our story is also such a wonderful encouragement to us as believers. So again, I don't know about you, but as I've listened to the stories of people in my life group week after week, I've left every single time encouraged and strengthened in my faith. Because I hear week after week stories about God's grace, God's provision, God's goodness, God's nearness. And so the overwhelming accumulation of evidence is that God is for us. God is good. He is gracious. And that strengthens me in my faith. And so we've got to keep telling stories because that's how we overcome. When times are tough, I'm going to remember your stories. I may not have faith for me. But the fact that I've seen God show up in all of your lives over and over again is what's going to give me encouragement in those moments. Then Brandon reminded us about the importance of owning our story. The good, the bad, and the ugly. And maybe even the shameful bits. Because you can't tell your story if you don't own it. And if you don't own all of it. I think the other thing that's been interesting for me in our life group journey is how difficult some of us have found it to tell our stories. As you've come to prepare to think about what do I share, many of us have realized, actually, I don't know what my story is because I don't ever take the time to reflect on that. Nobody ever asks me, actually, what my story is. And so when you do, 
it takes some time to figure out what do I say? What do I leave out? And that's another interesting thing. Many of us, if we're honest, we've wrestled with what do I put in and what do I keep out? Because I don't want to put stuff in that people might judge me for. And so sometimes we anticipate that people are going to label us and judge us in particular ways and that puts a limit or puts a constraint on how we think about our stories. And so the quote that Brandon shared with us, I want to come back to that, back in week, whatever it was, two, from Brené Brown. It really has sat with me the whole time. And so he said this, or Brené Brown said this, if you put shame in a Petri dish, it needs three things to grow exponentially. Secrecy, silence, and judgment. That quote just... It's undone me for the last few weeks. I feel like we should put that on door frames, door posts, so that every time we walk into church, we remember that. May we never be a community where shame is allowed to grow. May we never be a community where silence and secrecy and judgment have any place. But the question is, how do we avoid that, right? How do we make sure that we create an environment where nobody feels shame because of who they are, or how their story has unfolded. Well, in that same quote, Brené Brown goes on to say this, if you put the same amount of shame in a Petri dish and douse it with empathy, it can't survive. Empathy. So empathy is the antidote to silence and secrecy and shame and judgment. So what is empathy? It's just the ability to share someone else's feelings and experiences by imagining what it would be like to be in their position or their situation. And that's biblical, right? 1 Corinthians 12, 26 and 27 talks about the body of Christ. And it says, if one part suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part is honored, every part rejoices with it. That's empathy. But so what gets in the way of that? Why is it that there's a lack of empathy? Sometimes inside churches, but certainly in the world, there's a lack of empathy. And that brings me to week three, where Rowan challenged us around the assumptions that we make and the labels that we put on people. Because I think that often what gets in the way of empathy are the assumptions that we make about people and the labels that we put on them, or maybe the labels that society puts on them about who they are, their position, and their worth in society. And so those labels and assumptions limit my ability to hear your story and to see you as you are, because I've already made assumptions, and so I filter your story through those labels. I prejudge you, and I respond in ways that sometimes can be actually quite harmful. And in turn, because you anticipate being labeled, you rather keep quiet and suffer in silence. So our scripture this morning is a stark example of how empathy gets crowded out and real harm can be done when labels and assumptions become the lens through which we view individuals. So we're gonna read Genesis 16, verse one to 13. Genesis 16, 1 to 13, you can follow along. It's the story of Hagar and Ishmael. So this is a complicated and very uncomfortable story. 
There's a lot going on in here that I'm not going to get to today. But as we read it, I want you to listen to the labels that Abraham and Sarah used to refer to Hagar and the consequences that that has for the way that she's treated. So Genesis 16. Now Sarah, Abraham's wife, had borne him no children, but she had an Egyptian slave named Hagar. So she said to Abraham, The Lord has kept me from having children. Go sleep with my slave. Perhaps I can build a family through her. Abraham agreed to what Sarah said. So after Abraham had been living in Canaan ten years, Sarah, his wife, took her Egyptian slave, Hagar, and gave her to her husband to be his wife. He slept with Hagar and she conceived. When she knew she was pregnant, she began to despise her mistress. Then Sarah said to Abraham, you are responsible for the wrong I am suffering. I put my slave in your arms and now that she knows she's pregnant, she despises me. May the Lord judge between you and me. Your slave is in your hands, Abraham said. Do with her whatever you think best. And Sarah mistreated Hagar, so she fled from her. The angel of the Lord found Hagar near a spring in the desert. And he said, Hagar, slave of Sarah, where have you come from and where are you going? And there's a bit of an exchange between Hagar and God. He tells her, the Lord has heard of your misery. He's heard your story. And it ends in verse 13. She gave this name to the Lord who spoke to her. You are the God who sees me. So here we've got three people in a very particular context, a very particular culture and time. And they occupy different positions in the story and in their society, based on how society was structured. So Hagar's a slave, she's low status, she has few, if any, rights. And Abraham and Sarah are higher status, they have an established household, and they're holding on to this great promise from God that they're going to have a child and Abraham will be the father of many. And we consider Abraham a hero of the faith, and he is, right? Let's be clear on that. But this passage is a sobering reminder to me, at least, that you can love God and get it horribly wrong in the way you treat people. So what I find most sobering about this passage is they're holding, Abraham and Sarah are holding on to this promise from God, and then when things don't seem to be moving the way they think they should, they take matters into their own hands in pursuit of what God's promised, right? So they're doing what they think they need to to bring what God has promised to be. But they do it in a way that is totally dismissive of the dignity and worth of Hagar as a human being. And the result is sexual assault. Let's make no mistake. It's very uncomfortable. Hagar suffers very real physical, emotional, and psychological distress. And so the question is, why does the story play out this way? How does this happen? So it's complicated, but at least part of the story that I see unfolding here is that the labels and the assumptions that were built into the structure of their <coughs> daily lives, that were part of their society, set the parameters for how Hagar was viewed and how she was valued, or in this case, not valued. Those labels and assumptions which maybe Abraham and Sarah took for granted, maybe they didn't even think about them. The stereotypes and the accepted norms about their role, their place, their worth in society, 
relative to Hager's worth, Hager's role, her, her rights. Those unquestioned, unexamined practices and stereotypes. It's just the way things are. We've heard that. Those are the things that undermine the ability of Abraham and Sarah to empathize with Hagar and to see her as anything other than property. So if you read that text again, you see that the language they use when they're talking about Hagar, it's very transactional. She's a slave. She's someone who's going to help them get what they want, perhaps even what God has promised to them. They don't even use her name. Verse 2, go sleep with my slave. Verse 3, Sarah took her slave and gave her to her husband. Verse 5, Abraham, your slave is in your hands. Do with her whatever you think best. It's totally dismissive. There's no empathy there at all. There's no consideration for how Hagar might feel about being sexually assaulted and then becoming pregnant and still being forced to work in the same household of the person who's done this to her. So she flees and she goes to the desert. That's pretty dramatic, right? Imagine escaping to the desert where there's no food, there's no water, there's no protection, there's no shelter. That's the state of distress that she's in when she leaves. And that's where God finds her. Verse 8. And he said, Hagar, slave of Sarah. He names her. Such a different interaction than what she's used to, of being nameless and being property. God names her. He gives her the dignity of recognizing her as a person with a name or someone who has been named. So there's recognition of a family, of a history, of a context. It's such a beautiful contrast to what she's experienced. And note, God doesn't shy away from the fact that she's a slave, right? He says, Hagar, slave of Sarah. But he names her first. He recognizes her worth and her value and her dignity as the image bearer of God. And it's got nothing to do with her positionality. Hagar. He names her first. But he doesn't shy away from the fact that she's a slave. And I, I think there's something important in here for us to wrestle with and work through. Because sometimes we think that the only way to deal with labels and assumptions that exist in society is to pretend they don't exist or to not talk about them or not mention them. Let's just move on and pretend we're all the same. But that's not helpful, I don't think. Because if I can't see you and appreciate you, the fullness of who you are, your very real lived context, your history, even if it makes me feel guilty or defensive or confused or anxious, if I ignore that part of you or try to pretend that it doesn't matter, then I'm denying or ignoring part of what makes you you. But at the same time, those labels and assumptions have no material consequence or meaning for your worth or value in the eyes of God and so in our eyes, particularly inside the church. This is what we should be living out. So maybe labels are part of our story. Maybe they're part of your story, but they don't define your worth or your value. And so I think there's something in here for us to wrestle with about how we build authentic, diverse community 
where we can have honest conversations about who we are, where we've come from, where we're going, in a way that brings life and is restorative. The labels and assumptions that society puts on people have no material consequence for how God sees them, for their value or their worth, but they are part of their story. So God names her first, and then he asks her, Hagar, where have you come from, and where are you going? And if I were to paraphrase that, I'd say he's asking, Hagar, what's your story? Where have you come from, and where are you going? And that's what we've been doing as a church. It's been powerful, but it's just the start. I've been so challenged to think about whose stories am I not hearing? Who am I not seeing? Are there people in my life, maybe even in this church, certainly outside of church, that I don't truly see because of the labels and assumptions that I put on them or that society puts on them that prevents me from connecting? See, I think it's significant. When Hagar responds to God, she says, you are the one who sees me. She doesn't say, you're the one who knows me, you're the one who loves me, you're the one who understands me. She says, you're the one who sees me. And it's been interesting to me as we've been telling our story in life group, that's been a common phrase. Oh, I see you in a whole different light. I don't know if you've heard that in your groups, but that's the way we, as people share, we go, oh, I see, I understand, I see you in a, in a different way. And so I think that's significant because we can't love our neighbors if they're invisible to us. Or we don't really see them. In the way that Hagar and uh, sorry, Sarah and Abraham didn't see Hagar, we don't truly see our neighbors and the people around us for who they are, all of them. We can't love them properly. We're gonna become defensive when we're confronted with someone's story. We're not gonna be able to love them authentically. So who are we not seeing? Are there people who have been labeled in particular ways that affect the way we engage? And I don't just mean race or gender or sexuality. It could be family status. It could be that we've labeled someone as angry or arrogant or immature or as a know-it-all. The minute we label someone, it affects the way we engage with their story. Maybe it's that they're homeless. So one of the things I love in this church is that there are opportunities to serve at U-Turn. And the team that serves there, they are amazing. And they do such an incredible job of ministering and engaging and connecting with the people who come through the door. But we would miss the heartbeat of God if we thought that all that was about was serving food. It's got to go deeper. It's got to go deeper. And I have to be honest, so the last time I went to U-Turn, I had just finished serving food, and one of the men that I had handed a plate of food to called me over, or motioned for me to come over, and I went, and he asked me for a hug. And I have to say that in those, what felt like 20 minutes, it was probably 30 <laughs> seconds, while I tried to figure out what was I gonna do, Every stereotype and label that you can imagine went through my head. You're a strange man, I'm a woman, are you about to do something inappropriate? You're 
dirty and smelly. I'm clean. I've just had a shower. I just, I don't know that I want to do this. And I cycled through those labels and assumptions because of who he was before finally understanding that maybe in front of me was just a human being who needed a hug, who needed some human contact. Now, I'm not so suggesting that you should hug every homeless person. <laughs> Right, we have to we have to exercise wisdom. But at the very least, it means we can't do dine and dash justice. Because dine and dash justice leaves stereotypes and labels intact. It makes our relationships transactional and it crowds our empathy. So where does that leave us? So thankfully, as I was preparing, I happened to be reading Colossians 3 in my Bible, which is the New Life Application Bible. And actually, I suddenly tuned in. The headings for Colossians 3 in my Bible says, how should Christians live? I thought, ah, this is very helpful. Sometimes God has to be very direct with them. <laughs> and so what I, I want to encourage you to read it. It's an incredibly rich passage. I just want to pick up on a few things in Colossians 3 that have really resonated with me in light of this series. So, and I'm going to jump around, um, so please do go back and read it. Colossians 3 verse 9, don't lie to each other. Okay, so I think, obviously, don't tell lies to each other, but let's be honest with each other. Let's be authentic. No more smiley-faced Christianity, right? Let's get real. In our life groups, around dinner tables, over coffees, on sports fields, let's be having authentic, empathetic conversations. Let's be quick to listen, slow to speak, the way James tells us. Because you see, the thing is, if we practice empathy, then there's no need to lie to each other and give the smiley-faced version of Christianity, because now I can trust that I'm not going to be met with judgment. I'm going to be met with grace and empathy. Colossians 3 verse 10. Put on your new nature and be renewed as you learn to know your creator and become like him. Verse 12, since God chose you to be the holy people he loves, you must clothe yourselves with tender-hearted mercy, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Verse 14, above all, clothe yourselves with love, which binds us all together in perfect harmony, and let the peace that comes from Christ rule in your hearts. The language that Paul uses here is pretty deliberate, right? Put on, clothe yourselves. I don't know about you, but I have to deliberately get dressed in the mornings. My clothes don't magically jump out of the closet and land on my body. I have to make a deliberate choice about what to put on and what to take off. It's deliberate and it's daily. And so we have to practice empathy. We have to deliberately make a choice to empathize with others rather than judge them. We have to deliberately be kind even when we don't feel like it. We have to practice patience with those who irritate us. We have to be gentle on purpose. And we have to be tender-hearted towards each other. And some days we'll get it wrong, and that's okay because tomorrow we get to try again. But we have to be deliberate in these matters in the same way that we're deliberate in getting dressed every day. I'm going to go back to verse 10. Put on your new nature and be renewed as you learn to know your creator and become like him. Verse 13. Make allowance for each other's faults and forgive anyone who offends you. 
Remember the Lord forgave you, so you must forgive others. I love that idea of be renewed. Because renewal is an ongoing process. It's not once off. Be renewed. Try again. Learn from your mistakes. Forgive as many times as you need to. And so what I love about this is I get to say I'm a work in progress. I'm under renewal. We're all under renewal. We are all works in progress. And imagine if we could meet each other and see each other as works in progress rather than judging each other as though we are the finished product. That would change the dynamic of our conversations and our lives together. 2 Corinthians 3 verse 18 says, we are being transformed in his image with ever increasing glory. We're not there yet, but we're on a journey, right? We're learning, we're growing. We heard that so beautifully in Cecilia's story this morning. Ephesians 2 verse 10, we are God's masterpiece. So the next time I irritate you, just remember, I'm God's masterpiece, <laughs> under construction, <laughs> under renewal. <coughs> the way we see, the way we label, can change the way we interact with each other. God's not done with any of us. And I think, again, one of the things that's been so powerful about the series is as we've heard people's story, I've got such a fresh appreciation that the person I see in front of me today is the collection of their history and their experience to date. But the story's still unfolding. And who they are today is not who they're gonna be tomorrow or a year from now. And the minute I catch hold of that, there's grace. There's grace, there has to be, right? The same is true for us as a church. The church we are today, the way we do things, is a product of our journey so far. And our story is gonna to continue to unfold. Let's remember that. So when we get frustrated with each other, or maybe we get frustrated with church, let's remember, we're under renewal. We are a work in progress. Mm -hmm. Let's go back to verse 11. Paul says, In this new life, it doesn't matter if you are a Jew or a Gentile, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbaric, uncivilized, slave or free. Christ is all that matters, and he lives in all of us. So again, I don't think Paul is telling us to ignore our realities, our diversity, and pretend that we're all the same, because we're not. But he's reminding us that these things, these labels that society puts on us, are of no material consequence for our worth and value in the eyes of God. And as a result, they should be of no material consequence to how we engage with one another. Christ is all that matters and he lives in every one of us. That means every single one of us bears the image of God. And for that reason alone, is worthy of love and honor and dignity. Let me end with verse 16 and 17, just because they're so rich. Let the message about Christ in all its richness, and that's the richness of the stories we've been hearing, let it fill your lives. Teach and counsel each other with all the wisdom he gives. There's wisdom in our stories. Sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. This is for Jeremy and Tim. To God with thankful hearts. And whatever you do or say, do it as a representative of the Lord Jesus. It's nobody who is more empathetic than Jesus. That's our calling, to practice empathy. Do it as a representative of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. Amen? Amen. Amen.